Uh, I'm going to let you introduce Ingersoll, Joe, but uh, your topic tonight is some mistakes of Moses. Right. So, Thank you, Judy. Turning it over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I'd be happy to entertain any kind of questions or comments. Um, if you just kind of raise your hand and if we could limit the, if we get into some cross discussions, if we could limit uh, the comment time to about a minute and a half, I think uh, that's fair for everyone. We don't have to yell over each other that way. Um, in any case, uh, Robert Ingersoll, the famous uh, agnostic, died in uh, 1899. Uh, and uh, they produced uh, 12 volumes of uh, hardbound uh, uh, in his collected uh, work. So he wrote and uh, spoke uh, quite a bit. Let me fix this thing, sorry. Um, and tonight, or this afternoon, we're going to talk about uh, some mistakes of Moses. I mentioned to Judy earlier, there's a rebuttal to this called Some Mistakes of Ingersoll, which can also be found in his collected works, which is, I haven't read it, I've skimmed over parts of it. It's really kind of specious, almost, but funny in places. Um, in any case, um, this particular uh, piece by Ingersoll runs considerably longer than the ones we did a couple of weeks ago. It's about 160 pages, so we're just going to touch on the highlights. But again, don't uh, hesitate to uh, put up your hand if you have a comment or a critique or a question. Now, some mistakes of Moses. <clears throat> he who endeavors to control the mind by force is a tyrant, and he who submits is a slave. I want to do what little I can to make my country truly free, to broaden the intellectual horizon of our people, to destroy the prejudices born of ignorances and fear, and to do away with the blind worship of the ignoble past, with the idea that all the great and good are dead, and that the living are totally depraved, and that all pleasures are sins. Until every soul is freely permitted to investigate every book and creed and dogma for itself, the world cannot be free. Uh, Ingersoll goes on for about 20 pages here uh, before he actually gets into talking about the uh, uh, Old Testament and about Moses. So I'm just selecting a few uh, brief sentences. It is amazing to me the difference of opinion upon subjects that we know nothing about should make us hate, persecute, and despise each other. In other words, kill people for what amounts to a thought crime. <laughs> Christians tell me that they love their enemies. And yet all I ask is not that they love their enemies, not that they love their friends even, but that they treat those who differ from them with simple fairness. Now he goes on to talk about uh, um, the um, career of being a minister. His father was a fundamentalist preacher, and so he had a lot of firsthand knowledge about what it was like to be a member of a religious family. Um, and uh, he mentions uh, Andover College, which is a, a seminary that produces, um, it's a, he calls it a religious factory. <laughs> he says, uh, <clears throat> I haven't singled them out because they're worse. They're all about the same. The professors, for the most part, are ministers who failed in the pulpit and were retired to the seminary on account of their deficiency in reason and their excess of faith. As a rule, they know nothing of this world, 
and far less of the next, but they have the power of stating the most absurd propositions with faces solemn as stupidity touched by fear. <laughs> I can't see why anybody would get upset if you said that about them. He also says that he would like to liberate the politicians. Uh, at present, uh, office seeker is a good deal like the center of the earth. He weighs nothing but himself. <laughs> oh, he weighs nothing himself, but draws everything else to him. And he talks about um, passing laws against blasphemy. And he asks, you know, is, is it necessary to uh, pass a law uh, making it a crime to laugh at something uh, at the skills of, of uh, William Shakespeare? Uh, no, no one would ever dream of that. So why do we pass laws uh, for blasphemy? Uh, in fact, he tried, uh, he was the attorney uh, for the defendant, one of the last blasphemy cases uh, in history, uh, in the, uh, still in the 19th century. And he says, <clears throat> an infinite God ought to be able to protect himself without going in partnership with state legislatures. Certainly, he ought not so to act that laws become necessary to keep him from being laughed at. No one thinks of protecting Shakespeare from ridicule by the threat of fine and imprisonment. These are pretty strong arguments uh, in uh, what amounts to uh, basically three or four sentences, one paragraph of text. Uh, another reason I like Ingersoll is his mix of humor and satire and sarcasm uh, with his logic. And the idea that God needs protection, uh, you know, if you stop and think about it, it's laughable. And, and then uh, you think, well, God is getting protection all of the time. The, uh, uh, they close the liquor stores on his day. Uh, you can't, uh, a lot of businesses are closed. There are all kinds of things that the, uh, if you're uh, uh, um, religious, uh, one of them insists that other that women can't have control over their bodies and so on and so forth. So you can see that the God is still in partnership with uh, uh, legislatures at this very moment, uh, usually uh, to the negative effect uh, of us all. Now, getting on to the uh, Old Testament, it says, when we look for a moment at the world, we find that each nation has its sacred records, its religion, and its ideas of worship. Certainly all cannot be right. And as it would require a lifetime to investigate the claims of these various systems, it is hardly fair to damn a man forever, simply because he happens to believe the wrong one. All of these religions were produced by barbarians. Civilized nations have contented themselves with changing the religions of their barbaric ancestors, but they have made none. Uh, of course, uh, this was before Scientology and uh, Mormonism. But 
All religions insist that all other sacred books were written by hypocrites and imposters, that the Jews were the only people that God ever had personal intercourse with, and that all other prophets and seers were inspired only by impudence and mendacity. True, it seems somewhat strange that God would have chosen a barbarous and unknown people who had little or nothing to do with other nations of the earth as his messengers to the rest of mankind. It's not easy to account for an infinite God making people so low in the scale of intellect as to require a revelation. Neither is it easy to perceive why. Of course, if a revelation is or was necessary for all, unfortunately, it was made only to a few. And it goes on that whoever reads their sacred book is compelled to believe it or suffer forever the torments of the lost. All right, the Pentateuch. So the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. They were uh, allegedly written uh, by uh, Moses himself, but as Ingersoll points out, it's impossible that, that he could have written them for any number of reasons. We'll certainly get into that in short order. Anyone have any questions uh, or comments at this point over uh, anything that uh, Robert G. has had to say? Anything that I don't want to. <clears throat> I don't want to pour cold water on the the story of Moses, but. I think that uh, most biblical scholars would agree that Moses was a fictitious character that never existed. Um, yeah, he had a lot in common with other um, deities or supernatural figures um, in many other religions. They're orphans or foundlings. Uh, uh, Muhammad, uh, what do we know about his parents? <laughs> Nothing is well. Him. I do believe that Muhammad is a historical figure, but if, when we come to biblical characters like Abraham uh, and Moses, Jonah, and a number of other characters mentioned, uh, there's no evidence that they actually have any real history, they're just made up stories and. Yes, and plus the Sumerians and other religions, including Zoroastrianism, had characters, uh, particularly one that was named Mises. Oh, sorry, I didn't know if I was talking over you or not. You froze up on me. Um, I can still hear you quite well. Oh, okay. Yeah, but there was um, a lot of the um, Bible was based on earlier religions such as Zoroastrianism, and you find direct parallels in these earlier religions, including Moses, like I said, particularly a character named Mises. Right. It just seems kind of suspicious. We have this Mises that survived a great flood and, you know, Sumerian texts and earlier texts. So, yeah, it's most likely these were more fictional than realistic characters. Um, no, I, I would definitely agree with that. Uh, there's some uh, question of whether the exodus ever occurred and, and uh, uh, the uh, idea of parting the Red Sea. Uh, and again, as Ingersoll points out a little down the road here, that 
there were uh, 3 million Jews who fled uh, Egypt and 600,000 of those uh, were uh, basically their soldiers or, or their military. Um, the Pharaoh sent 500 uh, troops and chariots uh, after them when they tried to escape. Uh, yet they, uh, 600,000 of them <laughs> were afraid of 500 Egyptian chariots and had to call on God uh, to protect them from 500 people. Um, that sounds a little bit ludicrous. And besides, uh, God had already destroyed all of the animals in Egypt uh, with the hail. Uh, and uh, so the question of where they got the horses uh, is another issue <laughs> as to the veracity of the story. <laughs> Is there anyone here who thinks the Bible is true? I mean, I think we all think it's a work of fiction. Yes, it ought to be in the fiction set. Old the New and Old Testament. Yeah. No, I have no, no quarrel with that idea, that's for sure. Interesting that Moses is not recorded in Egyptian history. And neither is Hebrew slavery. <laughs> well, uh, again, I'm always reminded of the line from the life of Brian, uh, where he's up talking, standing up and talking to all the, with all the other Messiah wannabes. And one of the guys in the crowd says, well, he's making it up as he goes along. <laughs> Which I think is a description of everything we need to know about how religions are created. <laughs> And Ingersoll himself talks about, um, look at the raw materials necessary to create a religion. <laughs> of which there are 10,000 of them at this time. Pick one you like on this planet. So, give or take a few. Okay. All right. Well, uh, let's talk then about uh, the Pentateuch. The first five books in our Bible are known as the Pentateuch. For a long time, it was supposed that Moses was the author. And among the ignorant, the, the supposition still prevails. As a matter of fact, it seems to be well settled that Moses had nothing to do with these books and that they were not written until he had been dust and ashes for hundreds of years. But as all of the churches still insist that he was the author, that he wrote even an account of his own death and burial, let us speak of him as though these books were in fact written by him. As the Christians maintain that God was the real author, it makes but little difference whom he employed as the pen. <laughs> Nearly all authors of sacred books have given an account of the creation of the universe, the origins of matter, and the destiny of the human race. All have pointed out the obligation that man is under to his creator for having placed him upon the earth and allowed him to live and suffer. <laughs> Moses differed from most of the makers of the sacred books by his failure to say anything of a future life. By failing to promise heaven and to threaten hell, by failing to promise heaven and to threaten hell, upon the subject of a future state, there is not one word in the Pentateuch. And, and again, it begs the question of, uh, of the fall when uh, God threw Adam and Eve out of the, uh, the Garden of Eden. He never says a word about hell. 
He never says a word about eternal punishment. He just says that women will suffer pain in childbirth and men will have to work for a living. But he doesn't tell them uh, about the most important uh, thing that they need to know, which of course is his plan for salvation. We only have to wait uh, 4,000 years uh, until Jesus comes along to learn about that. Yeah, Jim, go ahead. Well, God in the Pentateuch in Genesis 3, verses 20 through 22, did in fact inform us that he had a plan to make sure that mortals would remain mortals. We would never become immortals. Okay, thank you very much. I'm not aware of that verse off the top of my head, but then again, uh, uh, I certainly don't know all of the Bible. <laughs> it, it goes something on the order of, behold, man has become as one of us to know oh, sure. good and evil. Therefore, let us put a cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to right, guard the way of the tree of life, right. lest man eat and live forever. So it was clear that God had, had no intention for human beings to live for eternity anywhere. And that in some way, the uh, tree of knowledge, uh, uh, you know, he, he punishes them for eating of the tree of knowledge, um, which they had no knowledge, so they didn't know any better. It's immoral to punish people for something uh, where they have no knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and that happens every day in court where people commit heinous crimes uh, and go to an asylum <laughs> instead of a prison. So if Jesus came and gave his eternal damnation in a, a lake of fire, then Jesus was a pretty bad character because I'd rather have the fate promised to me in Genesis 3 by God, which is cease and desist forever. <laughs> well, again, Ecclesiastes is pretty clear uh, on uh, what we can expect to happen uh, to us, which is we're going to be dead like every other animal in life form, and that's the end of it. So, so. All right, great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we must remember that every tribe and nation has some way in which the more striking phenomena of nature are accounted for. These accounts are handed down by tradition, changed by numberless narrators as intelligence increases, or to account for newly discovered facts, or for the purpose of satisfying the appetite for the marvelous. <clears throat> the way in which a tribe or nation accounts for day and night, the change of the seasons, the fall of snow and rain, the flight of birds, the origin of the rainbow, the peculiarities of animals, the dreams of sleep, the visions of the insane, the existence of earthquakes, volcanoes, storms, lightning, and the thousand things that attract the attention and excite the wonder, fear, or admiration of mankind may be called the philosophy of that tribe or nation. And as all phenomena are, by savage and barbaric man accounted for, as the action of intelligent beings for the accomplishment of certain objects. And as these things were supposed to have the power to assist or injure man, certain things were supposed necessary for man to do in order to gain the assistance and avoid the anger of these gods. 
out of this belief grew certain ceremonies. And these ceremonies, united with the belief, formed religion. And consequently, every religion has for its foundation a misconception of the causes of phenomena. <laughs> Did you guys, anybody have any problem following that? All right. All worship is necessarily based upon the belief that some being exists who can, if he will, change the natural order of events. The savage prays to a stone, while the Christian prays to a spirit, and the prayers of both are equally useful. Admitting that Moses was the author of the Pentateuch, or that he gave to the Jews a religion, the question arises as to where he obtained his information. It is admitted at the same time that he was an adopt adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter and enjoyed the rank and privilege of a prince. Under such circumstances, he must have been well acquainted, acquainted with the literature, philosophy, and religion of the Egyptians. The Egyptian priests taught first that God created the original matter, leaving it in a state of chaos. Second, that a God molded it into a form. And third, that the breath of a God moved upon the face of the deep. And that God created simply by saying, let it be. And that God created light before the sun existed. Nothing can be clearer than that Moses received from the Egyptians the principal parts of his narrative, making such changes and additions as were necessary to satisfy the peculiar superstitions of his own people. When, when God said, let it be, was he talking to himself or was there a dialogue? <laughs> if so, with whom? And, well... You'll have to ask Ringo uh, that question. I'm afraid I, I, I can't answer. But I do know that God created light, um, but there wasn't anything to see yet. <laughs> <laughs> Although, and again, we're getting into that as we get along here. He created the uh, plants and the flowers and everything uh, in the first three days, but he didn't create the sun until the fourth day. So... What he did with them, or what they did until the sun came along, you can speculate. Uh, and it puts the lie to the argument that, well, you know, when we talk about creating the earth in six days, we're talking about thousands of years in order to harmonize it, uh, with the, uh, things like uh, fossils. Since, uh, since Moses got all of his information, apparently, from a burning bush, if you see a burning bush, Walk the other way. Don't have a conversation with it. Uh, be careful how many times you tap the stone. <laughs> Those of you. You know, he was supposed to tap it twice and he tapped it three times or once and he tapped it to whatever it was. He tapped it the wrong number of times. And for that, he had to wander around for 40 years, which as someone pointed out in the chat, it's only 200 miles from Egypt to Jordan. And in fact, the area where everything that takes place in the Quran, the Bible, and the Torah, the area where 100% of the uh, events that they describe takes place 
uh, in a space on the globe that looks about this big uh, on an entire globe, about, oh, uh, about the size of New Jersey, maybe less <laughs> than that, which of course they thought was the center of the universe. If I understand this, this properly, while they were wandering around in the, in, in the desert, they were uh, slaying a bunch of tribes. In other words, doing a spot of ethnic cleansing during that, that period. <clears throat> well, they certainly did plenty of it once they got uh, to the promised land. Ah, yes. <clears throat> and uh, well, we got plenty of time. Uh, I, I want to get into that uh, uh, in detail in just a few minutes as to... Uh, how things went after Moses and, and Joshua went up to the top of Mount Nebo and uh, Moses told him uh, what to do. Uh, well, uh, let's do it now. I don't mind skipping around because this is important. <clears throat> uh, according to the biblical accounts, there were um, three million Jews that fled Egypt and of those 600,000 of them were soldiers. Um, Moses tells um, Joshua that there are seven cities, walled cities, uh, in the promised land that are much larger uh, than the Jews, each one of them. So putting them at only 4 million apiece, that would be 28 million people in those seven cities. You draw nigh to the city, you give the people an option. Uh, you can be our uh, maid servants uh, and men servants and give us 10% uh, of anything that you earn or produce forever and uh, all will be well. Failing that, we will kill everything, man, woman, and child, and leave nothing that breatheth. Surprisingly, uh, no one took that original, the first offer. So that's 28 million people. Now, beyond those seven walled cities were numerous, numberless, smaller cities that had no walls. And to them, you didn't bother to draw nigh and offer them anything. You just drew nigh and killed everything, uh, man, woman, and child, and leave nothing that breatheth. So if you do the math on that, Joshua is the greatest mass murderer in the history of mankind. He makes Albert, uh, uh, Adolf Hitler look like Albert Schweitzer. <laughs> so, so how many relatives named Josh? Be sure you tell them about this. Well, those residents were squatters. About their namesakes. Well, they may have been squatters and, you know, God gave the Jews a covenant to own that land, but he's a deity and he should know better. He should know that normally... When you convey real estate, you do it by a deed. How does this um, how does this claim stack up against um, the most likely projections of population in that area at that time? Right. If you do it on a per capita basis, uh, it ceases to be forty million people and becomes a couple hundred million. <laughs> well, actually, didn't he convey the property by deed? even if it was a bad deed. <laughs> like, yes, that, uh, if you want to use the homophone for deed, yes. <laughs> but unfortunately, I hope that's not the kind of deed you, you use to buy your property. <laughs> no, I, I, I used a good deed, the kind that you pay money to right. another person. <laughs> well, that's why you don't own as much land as William the Conqueror. His well, at least still, it, still run Great Britain. See, with the bad deed, they had extra benefits. They got to have all these sex slaves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you didn't get paid. It was a minimum wage plus rape and plunder. Just like like getting tips, being a tipped employee. Okay. Well, <laughs> a 
so much for the joys of, uh, of uh, smiting people. All That's hard work, wielding a, saw, a sword and smiting people all day long. So I think you're entitled to some rape and plunder. And of course, you could keep uh, any of the hostages who were women. Uh, you just had to shave their heads and pare their nails and put them in quarantine uh, uh, for a month. Uh, and then they were yours to do with uh, as you pleased. Makes you want to. I was never much of a military man, but I'd be willing to reconsider. <clears throat> okay, we'll get back here to Robert Ingersoll for just a moment. Don't hesitate to put up your hand and don't be bashful. Okay. Uh, Moses should turn out to be true and then would have to be forced to admit that he, he knew more than we had supposed. He certainly is no proof that a man is inspired simply because he is right. No one pretends that Shakespeare was inspired, and yet all of the writers of the Old Testament put together could not have produced Hamlet. <clears throat> Why should we, looking upon some rough and awkward thing in God or stone, of God or stone, say that it must have been produced, been produced by some inspired sculptor, and with the same breath pronounce the Venus de Milo the work of a man? All right, Monday. Moses commences his story by telling us that in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If this means anything, it means that God produced, caused to exist, called into being the heaven and the earth. It will not do to say that he formed the heaven and the earth of previously existing matter. Moses conveys and intended to convey the idea that the matter of which the heaven and the earth are composed was created. Again, he addresses the argument of uh, first cause uh, and uh, the, basically the Big Bang versus God created uh, matter or called it into being, uh, as if it's possible to magically do that, but not scientifically. That's the argument as I understand it in any case. <clears throat> it's impossible for me to conceive of something being created from nothing. <laughs> I guess not. Well, you know, when they say that, it's interesting because then, you know, you ask, well, who created God? Yes. Right. As I say, it moves our ignorance back one more level. <laughs> if they say, well, he was always was and always will be, well, the universe always was and always will be. It mm -hmm. just expands and contracts. There's also the question of who did he create it for? Because if you're going to say he created it for man, why did he create a planet where most of the planet is uninhabitable and the very creatures that he supposedly created it for? Mm -hmm. and, That's and most, of our, yeah, most of our planet is water. We don't live in water. Even the very little dry land that is on the planet, most of that dry land is uninhabitable by humans. So. If he created this planet specifically for us, he did a very poor job of it. Not to mention the fact the rest of the universe seems to be completely uninhabitable. So he created a lot of extra space and created a very small space for the special creatures, I guess you could call them. Um, seems like a very 
bad uh, planner, in my opinion. But. Well, and the whole system is based on uh, claws uh, and fangs, <laughs> basically. Uh, another great Ingersoll story, uh, a man and his son are out uh, for a stroll by the local pond and they see an egret or a long-legged bird. And the father points out how it's wonderfully designed by God to move stealthily through the body of water and see the underneath the water. And there's a long beak where they can spear the fish where the fish just doesn't have a chance. And the son says, well, that's really marvelous, but it doesn't sound like much of an arrangement for the fish. <laughs> a little from the mouths of babes. <clears throat> okay. All right. I, was, I found it cur curious that uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden were uh, naked, and that was no problem. All of a sudden, they eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and now they are suddenly ashamed, supposedly. <clears throat> well, this does not make sense to me because putting on clothing and teaching people that nakedness uh, is evil is what makes people ashamed. It's not the act of being naked. These same individuals will go into uh, a place like their bedroom, strip off their clothes and just have a great time and they're not the slightest bit ashamed to be exposed to one another. So I fail to see how that Adam and Eve observing each other naked uh, had any effect upon them whatsoever. They had been seeing themselves before and after they sinned. And until God came along and, and uh, chastised them, uh, they were not ashamed, to that, I don't think. Well, the argument is that it's not so much their nakedness. It was that they were introduced to uh, the idea of intercourse uh, and sexual desire, which, as we all know, is a sin. God went so far as to make for them uh, leather uh, coverings, a jacket and a, a skirt or whatever, which makes God a, uh, a butcher and a tanner and a seamstress and, or a tailor. <laughs> You can just picture him doing that. The point is that, you know, they really thought that God was a corporeal being. They came down and uh, saw the Tower of Babel uh, and walked among them. They even, uh, um, you, had a, you were required to carry a scoop so that you could bury your feces uh, when you defecated uh, out in the desert so that when God walked around the camp, he wouldn't step in your turd. There are instructions on how to do that in the Old Testament as well. So you can see that the concept of God was, uh, you know, he lived in the firmament. Uh, you could take the stairs and just walk right up there if you wanted to, uh, if you were lucky enough to be uh, Ezekiel or somebody like that. And then I was thinking like, today I've been doing a lot of math, like, okay, Adam and Eve, they were naked, but it, it must've took like 5,000 years before God actually spoke to them and said, Adam, where art thou? Like it must have taken 5,000 years. And they before, before they begin to sin, they must have been here for like 2 billion years. And that's without time because they were going to live forever. That's a long it time is, to go. Without that's just crazy. 
That's just crazy. Yes, it is. Uh, the, the whole math problem is a big problem for the uh, religionists. Well, the question that, that raises the question, when God created Adam and Eve, did he create them as mortals or did he create them as immortals? You got to well, think, though, they have to be immortals because God, God has to be infinite. He has to be. Whatever he creates had to be infinite until they, quote unquote, quote, ate from the tree, which I don't believe. Well, everything that God has ever created has died, and except the two things that are alive at this moment. So the idea that Adam and Eve uh, would die is, fits right in with, with everything else that he's ever created, although Adam did live to be 600 years old. Supposedly. Well, please. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a little faith. <laughs> No, I'm just saying, though, like, it's yeah, crazy to think, yeah, it's just crazy to think God, he, they had to be infinite because God doesn't end. Why would God create something with an end until they sinned, of course? Well, that question will be answered for all of us when we die. Oh, God. <laughs> there was the tree of life, of course. Um, which would have made them immortals had they eaten of it instead of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So it's uh, it was a crapshoot, I guess, because if they had gotten to the tree of life first, uh, <laughs> it would have been a mute point. It all seems uh, it all seems very silly in as much as. The, those unique set of characteristics that make us us, that is, that make us human beings, uh, originated in our desire uh, for knowledge. We, we spent most of our time on Earth trying to find out what's going on and how does it happen. And because we needed that information in order to survive in a very hostile world. Mm -hmm. um, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It makes sense then that um, uh, we would do anything other than eat from the tree of knowledge. Uh, the other, the other way simply implies that, like heaven itself, it's nothing but wall-to-wall -wall pleasures, without having to do anything. The, the the streets are paved with gold and the big mansions and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But what is the point of that? That doesn't make us human at all. But that's another story, but uh, still. Well, eating of the fruit, forbidding people from eating of the fruit of knowledge makes perfect sense if this is a exercise in hegemony, though. Because, mm -hmm. I mean, if religion is meant to control the population, the last thing you want to do is have people questioning the authority of the people in charge of that religion, which is why so much of the Bible has these prohibitions against questioning well, and yeah. If you're inspired, it's impossible for you to be wrong. Therefore, if you're being questioned, you, uh, it's not just uh, you, it's whether or not you're truly inspired. Uh, and if you're not inspired, then you're not a direct representative of the Almighty. Things can go poorly for you. I mean, I'm a, I always think of the Khmer Rouge, where the first thing they did was killed all the people with glasses yeah. because those were the people that were in college and that were being educated. And that would be the people that would question them. And those are the first people that they killed. 
And speaking of people, Linda, man, that is so bad. Linda Faulkner has the near miss is very characteristic of all the mythologies. Gilgamesh did went on this long trip. He got this special um, plant that was going to make him eternal, give him eternal life, and he decided to take a nap and then eat it after his nap. And a snake, another um, characteristic of mythologies, comes along and eats <clears> the <throat> plant. So he, his tour, his long trip was for nothing. <laughs> Near miss of eternal life is we see that over and over in mythology. There's always a catch. Uh, at the end, uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, you know, uh, uh, Orpheus looks back at the last moment, and there goes Eurydice back to uh, Hades, and uh, um, it reminds me of uh, Bedazzled, where uh, Peter Cook and uh, Dudley Moore, every time he uh, grants one of his wishes, there's always a catch, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, you'll be married. Of course, you'll be in love with somebody else, but you'll be married to the girl you love. In any case, uh, uh, it seems to me that, again, all of the myths uh, end that way. Uh, Hercules, you know, is a strong man, but he's so stupid that he uh, upsets people at a, a funeral and a wedding party and has to perform his 12 tasks. And just pick a deity. They're all uh, or a uh, person of that nature. They all have some real shortcoming. Shortcoming. Okay. okay. Back to some mistakes of Moses. The stories that Moses told were substantially the same story that it had been imprinted in curious characters upon the clay records of Babylon, the gigantic monuments of Egypt, and the gloomy temples of India. In, th in those days, there was an almost infinite difference between the educated and the ignorant. The people were controlled almost entirely by signs and wonders. By the lever of fear, priests moved the world. How to put superstition uh, to your own good advantage. <clears throat> the next thing we are told by the inspired gentleman uh, is that God created light and proceeded to divide it from the darkness. Certainly the person who wrote this believed that darkness was a thing, an entity, a material that could get mixed and tangled up with light, and that these entities, light and darkness, had to be separated. In his imagination, he probably saw God throwing pieces and chunks of darkness on one side and rays and beams of light on the other. Okay. All right, Tuesday. We are next informed by Moses that God of the waters, uh, I think it's a misprint, and let it divide the waters uh, from the waters, and that God made the firmament uh, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. What did the writer mean by the word firmament? Anybody want to hazard a guess? I mean, <laughs> well, uh, as I understand it, the firmament referred to the sky, the, the night sky. Um, 
But of course, you could also say because of the word firm embedded in there, that it had to do more with the earth, <coughs> terrestrial landscape. But who yeah, knows? I, I get the impression that it was some sort of dome that surrounded the earth. Uh, uh, and uh, on, on above that dome uh, was the deity and his throne and so forth. And uh, as I recall, they had to open the, the windows to allow the rain to come through. And uh, God opened the windows of the firmament uh, you know, during the great flood and, and that sort of thing. But that's what caused the rain was uh, allowing it to pour through the sieve of the firmament as needed. My understanding is it's sort of what you said, a, a, a globe that it surrounded the earth. Mm -hmm. Stars and all were in it. That was the firmament. Mm -hmm. They were embedded in that. Right. right. Okay. Theologians now tell us uh, that by firmament, he meant an expanse. This will not do. How could an expanse divide the waters from the waters so that the waters above the expanse would not fall into and mingle with the waters below the expanse? The truth is that Moses regarded the firmament as a solid affair. It was where God lived and where water was kept. It was for this reason that they used to pray for rain. They supposed that some angel could, with a lever, raise a gate and let out the quantity of moisture desired. It was with the water from this firmament that the world was drowned when the windows of heaven were opened. It was in this sit, it was in this said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the firmament that the sons of that's some sort of typo there. And who saw the daughters of men, oh, oh I see. Um, he goes on to talk about there were other gods and uh, they were, uh, they had uh, children and how they, uh, came, and there were giants. Um, they were called uh, Neophim or Nilophim or something like that. And they came down and, and cavorted uh, with uh, mortal women uh, and produced uh, uh, children who were half giants. Perhaps one of their uh, progeny was Samson. Um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure on that point. But nevertheless, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, Moses, uh, at least, uh, thought that there were other gods uh, and uh, that uh, some of the celestial beings, even though they weren't gods, they were just giants, uh, came down from the firmament uh, for the purpose of cohabiting uh, with the women of earth. The idea that the firmament, firmament was the abode of the deity must have been in the mind of Moses when he related the dream of Jacob. And he dreamed and behold, a ladder set upon the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God and descending, ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God. So when the people were building the Tower of Babel, or Babel, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children and the men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. 
and nothing will be restrained from them which they imagine to do. Go to, let us go down and confound their language that they may not want, understand one another's speech. The man who wrote this absurd account must have believed that God lived above the earth in the firmament. The same idea was in the mind of the psalmist when he said that God bowed the heavens and came down or bowed the heavens and came down, one or the other. Well, if you look at it, sorry. Jim, yes. Yeah, oh, I, I'm saying if you think about it, uh, there was not much other choice because uh, if you look laterally over the landscape, God could not be found. And if you dug down into the, into the soil, uh, you would likely not find any gods there either. So the only place remaining for God to exist would be, and, and, and especially because it would be then an, an, an unapproachable God, would be up in, the, up in the sky somewhere. Yeah, much better than being on top of Mount Olympus. You could go to the top of Mount Olympus, at least ultimately people could get up there and see that there wasn't anything but rocks. But you can't uh, get to the firmament unless you've got Jacob's ladder. Yeah. James A. Young. Has his hand up. All of this flies in the face of reality and the notion that the Bible is an inerrant message from God himself to reveal to mankind uh, the mysteries of life. When you think about it, if you have this firmament above and, uh, and below and, and the earth in between, it really is absurd because if you think about that, it denies the existence of space and the planets and the other stars. And the people at the time saw these various lights, but they did not see them as uh, planets or stars. They saw them simply as greater and lesser lights. And apparently God was uh, willing to go along with his false idea because he allowed them to put in their book of inerrant truth the notion that these were merely lights. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's a good point to pick up on, especially if you are trying to educate someone about the infallibility of the Bible. What I find amazing about the Bible is the Old Testament presents God as a bloodthirsty asshole. Why would you worship this person? I mean, almost every chapter of the Old Testament does that. There is, you know, the, the language thing you just mentioned, the whole Moses thing. I mean, if the man is all-powerful, why does he need to kill children? Why not, if he has to kill somebody, kill the Pharaoh? And then tell the next person, hey, you don't let my people go, I'll kill you too. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot more efficient and a lot less bloodthirsty, and you're actually killing the people responsible as opposed to innocents. So I, I, I'm just amazed by that fact. Well, again, the deity of the uh, time, like any deity, uh, reflects the culture uh, and the knowledge uh, of the people that it represents. 
And the people uh, that the uh, Jewish God represents uh, were perfectly happy to <laughs> kill 30 or 40 million people, <laughs> at least according to the Old Testament. Let me read what Ingersoll has to say about uh, the God of the Old Testament. It is impossible to conceive of a, of a more thoroughly despicable, hateful, and arrogant being than the Jewish God. He is without a redeeming feature. In the mythology of the world, he has no parallel. He only is never touched by agony and tears. He delights only in blood and pain. Human affections are not to him. He cares neither for love, nor music, nor beauty, or joy. A false friend, an unjust judge, a braggart, a hypocrite, and tyrant, sincere in hatred, jealous, vain, and revengeful, false in promise, honest in curse, suspicious, ignorant, and changeable, infamous and hideous. Such is the God of the Pentateuch. That's pretty clear. <laughs> I go along with everything. <laughs> yeah, no, no disagreements there. And it's interesting how that the God of the Islamic State, ISIS, uh, was exactly the same. And so the ISIS, when they went out to conquer uh, Iraq and the peoples that were living in Iraq, they just mass murdered them. And they kept the virgin children and women for, them, for sex slaves. And it was all perfectly a-okay with the boss in heaven to do that. Yes, in fact, uh, the uh, priest uh, in this instance, you're referring to the Midianites, I believe. Um, uh, no, I, I'm referring to ISIS. Oh, oh that's. Uh, well, no, there's. Went a, around slaughtering people by the tens yeah. of thousands, anyone right. who would not convert and join their regime. Right. Well, in uh, the book of Numbers, uh, the. Uh, uh, Israelites destroy uh, uh, the Midianites and they take all of the uh, women who have never uh, known a man uh, and uh, give those over to the uh, troops and 10% are given to the priests and there were 32,000 of them. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, the, the high priest, I, I can't remember his name, but Moses' high priest gives him a ration of crap. <laughs> Uh, over the fact that uh, he, he left some of the young boys alive and children and uh, he says, here's what you need to do. And that is kill everybody except the, women, the girls that haven't known a man. So uh, God was upset that they, he didn't kill enough people. And furthermore, what kind of a God needs to send his minions out to do the killing for him. If God wanted the Midianites dead, all he had to do was uh, let it be, speak, right. let it be. But instead, he, he sent his chosen people out to do the evil for him. He killed 50,000 people with a plague in three days. Um, um, 
to punish David for conducting a census without his permission. So he certainly has the power to do that sort of thing. After all, he's, he's infinite, is he not? <clears throat> Ingersoll says that if the Pentateuch is true, religious persecution is a duty. The dungeons of the Inquisition were temples. <laughs> if the Pentateuch was inspired, every heretic should be destroyed, and every man who advocates a fact inconsistent with the sacred book should be consumed by sword and flame. So as I've said many times, if you try to live by the Old Testament, you'd be very fortunate to avoid being executed hmm. by the state. <laughs> well, there was a lot of killing going on, in, including anyone who was a fortune teller. Uh, so astrologists and fortune tellers and palm readers would have had to have been put to death. And if your children talked back to you, you could just kill them. <laughs> uh, witches, familiars. Witches, which, and who's to know who is a witch? Anybody that you don't like, <laughs> you could claim that they're a witch. And uh, spiritualists, anyone who claimed to be able to talk to the dead, you could kill them. Anybody that uh, worshipped a different God, you could kill them. And if anybody came into town as a missionary for a different religion, absolutely, you, had, you were obligated to kill them. Too and much. the list of killing goes on and on and on to such length. Uh, there probably was a lot of people in uh, Jewish people in, in Israel uh, that died at the hand of the sword or the hand of the stone. So maybe that's how they kept population growth under control. Jim, are you saying it's hard to know which witch is which? Yeah, so they had that problem in Massachusetts. So they would weight them down and, and it would tie them up, weight them down the stones, throw them in the river. And if they uh, were able to float, then they were a witch. And if they didn't float, well, that's just too bad. <laughs> we made a little error. Hey, my bad. <laughs> Either way. Okay. Well, um, I've got about uh, 10 or 15 minutes here at the most. So let's talk about uh, Robert Ingersoll. And uh, some of the, again, mistakes of Moses. Moses lived about 1,500 years before Christ, and although he was inspired and obtained his information directly from God, he didn't know as much about our solar system as the Chinese did a thousand years before he was born. <laughs> Hard to explain that. <clears throat> I guess uh, if only Moses had been Chinese, we'd all be better off. Is it not strange that a Chinaman should find out by his own exertions more about the material universe than Moses could when insisted by its very creator? About 800 years after God gave Moses the principal facts about the creation of heaven and earth, he performed another miracle far more wonderful than stopping the world. On this occasion, he not only stopped the earth, but actually caused it to turn the other way. 
a Jewish king was sick, and in order to convince him that he would ultimately recover, God offered to make this, actually by way of Isaiah, offered to, uh, to make the shadow on the dial go forward or backward 10 degrees. The king thought it too easy to make it go forward and asked that it should be turned back. Thereupon Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord, and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backwards by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. Um, no one else um, uh, on the planet, and again, the, at least the Chinese knew something about astronomy, <laughs> happened to note that the world went backward in time for 20 minutes is how long it went backwards uh, on the uh, sundial of uh, Ahaz, all to prove that the king would uh, survive a boil on his neck, uh, which they cured <laughs> it before, the, before the miracle. Uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, it's a good example of the credulity uh, that religion brings to the party and the um, fact that it's a detriment uh, to knowledge because the purpose of any uh, theologian or cleric or priest is to make sure that the creed never changes, <laughs> right? That, look at how hard the Amish uh, have worked to accomplish that. Uh, so anyone who wants to live in a, a world that has no change, since change is the only constant, um, is basically uh, trying to swim upstream uh, for no apparent reason in uh, a very, very powerful river. So much for the idea of having a creed. When I was a child and I viewed the world through rose-colored glasses, I thought that I would like to see the world unchanged. But of course, that was a, not going to be the way it was, obviously. Mm -hmm. So now all the people that I knew then are dead. And I, I would have trouble finding my way around the old neighborhood. It's changed so much. But some things don't change. And the human ignorance is one of them. It's a constant. Yeah, right. Well, I, I think... Um... There was some uh, ancient king who asked his uh, wise man to come up with a saying that he could say that would always be true and would make him sound, uh, you know, uh, intellectual or informed. And that was the phrase he came up with, which was, this too shall pass. Michael, go ahead. And say so what really needs to change is that we need to get these ideas out there more. Because, I mean, you figure Ingersoll wrote this, you know, nearly a century and a half ago. And yet... You know, I don't see any real progress being made as far as getting the um, these ideas out of the popular consciousness and out of government and out of society. So, I mean, I guess the big ultimate question, the one I always struggle with as an educator, is how do you get the ideas of Robert Ingersoll and the like out there to people? So, I mean, I think that's the big change that needs to be made. And how is that change made? I mean, I, especially in these days, I think that's one of the biggest questions that we need to face. I mean, may, I, <laughs> Go ahead. may I, in, may I inquire uh, what you are doing, Michael, 
to help uh, educate people in your community uh, about well, issues with that are dear to you. Like I don't know what your is most dear to you, whether it's human rights or whether uh, educating ignorant people, but how, how do you, are you engaged in activism and if so, what kind? Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I am a college professor. So, I mean, you know, in my classes, I always put these ideas out there in my class and I always get my students to uh, critically think about things. I am always uh, pushing critical thinking above all else. And I always tell my students, you know, if you have questions, and I don't care if even if you're questioning me, I want you to question me. I don't want you to sit there and back with questions in your head. I want you to get your questions out there. And I try to give them as many of these tools of critical thinking as possible. And, you know, I do do some activism. I also work in social services uh, for the state of Illinois. And I mean, that, that's a very uphill battle trying to get these uh, Christian um, ideas out of state government, but I mean, I'm always getting in trouble for, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been, I used to teach at the University of Oklahoma. I was constantly being brought into the office because students were saying I was anti-Christian and I was making fun of Christians because I happened to say something that didn't agree with the Christian ideas. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get the ideas out there, I mean, whether I'm being real successful or not, I guess, you know, maybe time will tell, but I'm, I'm trying to do my part. <laughs> I guarantee you, if you are doing what, those things that you just discussed, you are making a difference. And right. I want to thank you. I, I want to thank you for uh, doing that. And because I really sincerely believe that every single one of us in some capacity can reach out and touch the lives of other people, whether it's writing letters to the editor or whether it's posting uh, messages on uh, online. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I personally use YouTube. Other people uh, use Twitter and Facebook. I don't like those uh, uh, venues. Excuse me, James, we're almost out of time. So I want to make sure that Joe gets okay. to finish up uh, what he wanted to say. But okay. I agree with you. <laughs> well, uh, I'll try to be as brief as possible. I've got a couple of pages here, but it's a summary uh, of um, some mistakes of Moses. Ingersoll says, let us admit what we know to be true, that Moses was mistaken, that the story of creation is not true. The Garden of Eden is a myth. The serpent and the tree of knowledge and the fall of man are but fragments of old mythologies that woman was not made out of a rib, that serpents never had the power of speech, that the sons of God did not marry the daughters of men, and that the story of the flood and ark is not exactly true, that the Tower of Babel is a mistake, that the confusion of tongues is a childish thing, that the origin of the rainbow is a foolish fancy, you can see Moses was seriously mistaken, <laughs> that Methuselah did not live 969 years, that Enoch did not leave this world, taking with him his flesh and bones, and that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is somewhat improbable. 
that that Jacob did not, in fact, put his hip out of joint wrestling with God. The history of Tamar might just as well have been left out. That the belief in Pharaoh's dreams is not essential to salvation. That it makes but little difference whether the rod of Aaron was changed into a serpent or not. <laughs> There's another page of it. I'll just hit a few more of them. Uh, the, he, he never, God never told Aaron to draw cuts to see which of two goats should be killed. That he never objected to clothes made of woolen mixed with linen. That, he, that if he objected to dwarfs, people with flat noses and too many fingers, he ought not to have created such folks. That he did not demand human sacrifices as set forth in the last chapter of Leviticus. That he did not object to the raising of horses. That he never commanded widows to spit in the faces of their brothers-in-law. <laughs> that he never believed the firmament to be solid. That he knew slavery was and always would be a frightful crime. That polygamy is but stench and filth. God, as well as man, that without liberty, virtue is impossible. And that without freedom, even love cannot exist. That every man should be allowed to think and to express his thoughts. That woman is the equal of man. Keep in mind, he wrote this prior to 1899. That woman is the equal of man. <laughs> the children should be governed by love and reason. That the family relation is sacred. That war is a hideous crime. That the freedom of today is the hope of tomorrow. That the enlightened present ought not to fall upon its knees and blindly worship the barbaric past. And that every free, brave, and enlightened man should publicly declare that all the ignorant, infamous, heartless, hideous things recorded in the inspired Pentateuch are not the words of God, but simply some mistakes of Moses. All right, very good. Very good, Joe. Well, thank Robert Ingersoll. <laughs> I really like the title of this, um, this the name of this video. I really like the title of it, uh, Moses something. I thought it was a good topic to discuss. Thank you. You're welcome. Tony. Uh, Antonia, you're muted. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, uh, the Quakers uh, in England believed in equality of women, and uh, they were also against slavery, and uh, that may have been prior to 1800s, I think. Maybe Ingersoll learned it from the Quakers. <laughs> well, be. that's probably one of the reasons that you could uh, find the Quakers being whipped through the streets. Uh, and uh, persecuted in any number of ways um, yeah. because uh, to, to diverge from the idea of eternal punishment, of course, is blasphemy. <clears throat> the only well, crime can't be forgiven. Well, they didn't, they didn't believe, you know, they had a different religion from, uh, from the British, so. And they, <laughs> and, they suffered, and they suffered for it. Yeah. That's why we have America. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I'd like to point out that the pilgrims did not uh, uh, leave um, Holland 
to uh, escape the prejudice of the Dutch. They left because they were so prejudiced and narrow-minded that the Dutch couldn't tolerate them. And neither could anyone else. That's why they left the UK. Yes, they did not come here to give us religious freedom. That's right. Um, they came they were actually a millenarian movement. They believed that the ending was imminent and they wanted to create a quote-unquote kingdom of God in the new world. Right. Yeah. Exclusively for Christians. There was no room for oh, yeah. Which is why, you know, Native Americans weren't exactly uh, oh. treated well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, okay, so it's about time for us to close down. I want to thank everybody for coming. Um, yes. Next week, uh, we have Del McGowan, who's the author of Parenting Beyond Belief. And he's going to be talking to us about the gap between cultural and biological evolution, which uh, he feels is the cause of the cultural wars uh, and is not being talked about nearly enough. So I hope everybody will be able to make it then. We will start on time next week, just so you know. Uh, and we will not have the introductions because I want to give him as much time as possible uh, to talk about uh, what he wants to, to help us understand. So um, you, Joe is very good. Yes, Joe, thank you very much. Sorry, I meant to say that. Thank you, <clears throat> thank uh, you Tony, kind. for reminding me. Um, really appreciate your such a bastion of knowledge that it's, that it's so impressive. Um, I, I want, yeah, thanks everybody. And I guess we'll see you next week. Um, if anybody uh, is interested, like Michael, if you're interested in giving us a talk, or Chris, I have asked him already, uh, please okay. let me know. I'd like to personally invite Michael to join us again. He's very informed, obviously. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. Great addition to our group. Thank you. Yes. I would like, I'd and like so to is Chris. Thank, 